Welcome to the To Faithful Men podcast. This project started in 2006 to preserve old sermon and study tapes of Wiley Flanagan, Hassel Wallace, and Mike Strevel. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. I ran across a little treasure this week in a in a rather unexpected place and in a little and in a rather unexpected way. Um, <clears throat> Brother Flanagan, as you know, when he became unable to use his own library, gave it to me and. Uh, a number of the books that I have in my study back there came from Brother Flanagan, uh, many of which I've not had an opportunity to really spend much time with. Um, but this past week I was studying on a particular subject and and thought about a book that uh, I'd gotten from Brother Flanagan, and I came across a little a little note that he had put in in the in the pages of this book as I suppose some kind of a bookmark and uh, <clears throat> it blessed my soul in a great way and has something to do with what I'd like to talk a little bit about tonight out of the uh, sixth chapter of the book of Acts it's a quote from John Wesley and it goes like this and this is in Brother Flanagan's handwriting just a little handwritten note that he he wrote on a little slip of paper uh, and put it in a book that is well-worn, that I'm sure he referred to often. It was a commentary on, on Matthew by uh, Charles Spurgeon. And it goes like this. <clears throat> when I have any money, I get rid of it as quickly as possible, lest it find a way into my heart. Then on the back side... There's a scripture from Deuteronomy 10:12. And now Israel, what does the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Again, handwritten in Brother Flanagan's handwriting. <clears throat> You know, probably a lot of the young people here don't don't really remember Brother Flanagan very well. Um, and the last times that we, Brother Flanagan was here at our church, his mind had already begun to slip to such a place that he refused to try to stand in the pulpit and speak. But uh, Brother Flanagan... Well, is, a, is he's still alive. Jamie sees him every once in a while down there at the nursing home in Grenada when he goes down there on his rounds. And, and uh, Brother Flanagan is, <clears throat> was a, is a primitive Baptist preacher. He's well up in his 80s now and and has Alzheimer's disease and, and uh, a mind that was once great and thought great thoughts and Men would go to hear him teach, Brother Wallace and Brother James Allen and I did for uh, many weeks, uh, is now wasting away in a, in a nursing home, and, and uh, well, we'll not think on the sadness of that. There is coming a day, Brother Wallace, when all of that sort of thing will be forever and finally put away, and I praise the Lord for it. But Brother Flanagan, like a lot of primitive Baptist preachers, <clears throat> had to uh, earn his own living while he preached. And among primitive Baptists, that's, that's, a, common, that's a common phenomenon. I'm thankful that, that we've been taught that that's not to be the norm, certainly not the standard, and, and uh, many are moving away from that, and I'm thankful for that. But Brother Flanagan made his living by building. He was a builder. Uh, as a matter of fact, Brother Flanagan could do everything. I, I've never seen anybody that could do as much as, as he did. He was the chief carpenter on this building. He was the chief electrician. He was the chief plumber. He was the chief heat and air man. 
Matter of fact, the only thing I think I guess he didn't do was was finish the concrete. As I recall, I believe he built the forums for it, laid it out, built the forums, and uh, but he didn't pour it and and finish it. We hired somebody to do that and and hired somebody to tack the roof on. And uh, Brother Flanagan probably wouldn't have trusted me up on the roof to try to do that, and I wouldn't have trusted myself with it. But Brother Flanagan, uh, when he retired, so to speak, uh, was pastoring a little church over at Corinth, and and uh, we were wanting to build this building. We didn't have much money. As a matter of fact, at that time, this was in 1982, there were very few men in the church. As a matter of fact, uh, <clears throat> the men consisted of Brother Wallace, Brother Bobby, Brother Robert, and me. And uh, there were a few older, a couple older men, but that was pretty much the, the, the men in the church at that time. And Brother Robert was single and trying to trying to run a business. And, and uh, I was teaching school here, and, but during the summer I was off and able to devote my time to that and Brother Flanagan came over here day after day through the whole summer in 1982 and and helped us build this building. Well, we would not have done it without him. We couldn't have done it without him. Then other men from Grace Chapel and other areas would come and help us in the major projects. We had probably 12, 15 people here when we framed this up. Brother Bob was in the, in the school at that time but not the church and he was very zealous to come and and work here <clears throat> even before he was coming to church here and uh, not only did Brother Flanagan come and provide the expertise for all of this he donated thousands of dollars personally to build this building and uh, right about that time actually a little bit before that um, Sister Flanagan his wife had had somehow come in contact with a couple of older ladies who had no kin folks and were getting infirmed and so she took care of them and they finally ended up moving into the house and they willed them this house and and a little bit of money and and uh so brother flanagan was was very generous to to give it away to help matter of fact we built the gym out here brother flanagan donated the uh the air conditioning system that's that's in the gym out there he was not able to come and assist in that work, particularly at the time. I think maybe they'd moved up in East Tennessee by then. Um, what kind of a man really means this? When I have any money, I get rid of it as quickly as possible, lest it find a way into my heart. Now, Brother and Sister Flanagan have a comfortable home down in Grenada, a double-wide mobile home is, is their home. Their last vehicle was, I don't even know what to make of that old car was, uh, a white, an old little white station wagon, a Toyota or something or another. I don't know exactly what it was, but um, if Brother Flanagan had kept all the money that he'd given away, um, he'd have been able to build him some kind of a, a mansion down there and, and driven the, the best car that there was. <clears throat> But he had an attitude about about money that I, I believe is very similar to what this first century Christians had that we've been reading about here in in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, we noticed as we studied through this that they had all things common. Um, that is, no one considered that anything that he possessed was his own. He was willing to use all his resources for the purpose of propagating the gospel of Christ and, and uh, for the needs of, of the church, um, which which obviously meant that anything that they had that, that they didn't just need, they, they sold it and, and brought it to the apostles, laid it at their feet, and we've noticed all the things about that. Well, humanly speaking... There are always problems with such a thing. And so as we move throughout the New Testament, we find uh, the, the welfare system of the church pretty well summarized in a couple of verses. And that is, if a man doesn't work, he ought not to eat. Now that, that's God's welfare program. And, and it's worked very well up until this century. 
but then there are situations where people are, are incapable of working. They're not able to work. Then the New Testament says their family ought to take care of them. If they're not able to provide for themselves, their families ought to take care of them. And, of course, that's God's welfare system. We, if I say welfare, just to use the modern vernacular, um, then if, if someone was, was infirmed and sick or old, widowed or something, and, and couldn't see to themselves, had no means of, of income, and if they had family that would not take care of them, or could not, I would suspect mostly would not, then the church became willing to, to uh, provide for them. Now the problem in our day and their day is that what we consider to be the essentials of life are pretty luxurious. You know what? Um, that'd mean we'd, we'd have to pay the electric bill and the phone bill and the gas bill and, and the insurance note and, and a, lot, a lot of stuff that they didn't even think about back in these days. In these days, it was food and, and shelter. They took care of that. Well, as you might suppose, there, as human beings do, there began to be some murmurings and complainings about the way that the money was being uh, spent in the church. And it seemed to the Grecian widows, the, the widows who were not did not have a, a uh, genetically a Jewish uh, heritage, it seemed that the, the, the full-blooded Jews, not the proselytes, not those who were Grecians who had become, who had become uh, Jews or, uh, and, and later then, of course, became Christians, it seemed that maybe that they felt, they, they felt like in some way. Now, whether this was true or not, I, I suspected it wasn't true because the apostles at this time were personally overseeing the expenditures of the monies that came into the church. They brought the money and laid at the apostles' feet and, and uh, disbursement was made to every man as, as every man had need. Now, that's, that's not a very workable situation for a lot of reasons. Number one, the apostles themselves were recipients of part of the money. Uh, these these uh, apostles had given themselves to, to the work and so... They had wives and families, and so the church was supporting them financially, which was proper. But yet, but yet, uh, they were dispersing the money. Now, uh, if if I was the the one who took in the money, and I was the treasurer of the money, and I was the greatest recipient of the money, now you'd have to be nearly angelic to wonder sometimes whether everything was exactly as it ought to be, especially if we came a little short here or there. You, you'd just have to be nearly non-human to, to wonder about that. And so what we have in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts is a, is a division of responsibility that uh, became a permanent fixture in the church, and, and, well, it should. That is the institution of the office of deacons. And we've talked a lot about deacons in the last couple of years here, in as much as we've appointed two new deacons to our assembly. And by the way, as far as our four deacons are concerned, Brother Reggie and and uh, Brother Robert and uh, Brother Tom, Brother Claude, I uh, I feel myself to be very grateful to have spiritually minded men like these to uh, to advise me and and to help me and, and to be my counselors and to also know that they are going to take care of whatever funds this church has entrusted to it in a, in a proper and a biblical manner. Um, we have found throughout the, the history of the church in a lot of ways that there's been a lot of, of uh, tension between ministers and deacons. And I think there's a fundamental reason for that. Why I believe there's a fundamental reason for this for this historic tension that that exists between ministers and deacons, I mean, it's the stuff of jokes. A lot of jokes have been made about deacons and and preachers and their relationship together, and, and many times the stormy relationships they have. And the reason I believe that exists is this: is that we have a false view of a pastor 
that a pastor occupies a transient position. Now, I don't believe that's a biblical view of a pastor. Uh, Paul told Timothy to ordain elders in every church, not elders for every church. And, of course, there are times when preachers need to, to move to other locations and take on different kinds of works. But uh, in our day and age, preachers have become somewhat of a profession rather than a calling. And, and uh, so they come into a church that's been in existence for maybe hundreds of years, certainly for decades. And there are some men in the church called deacons. Well, they grew up in that church. They know all the ins and outs in that church. They, under, they know the history of that church. They've been there. They've been a part of that. And here comes this, this pastor who doesn't know all of that, and yet he comes in and says, I'm in charge and, and I'm the pastor. Well, I believe you've got a formula for discord. It doesn't have to be, but I, it, it happens quite a lot. Uh, so much so that, as we said, jokes are made of it and, and uh, fun is poked at it about the tension that exists between ministers and deacons. And Well, I'm thankful that in, in this, this church, um, there is no such tension. I feel, I feel there to be in this church a complete uh, and blessed harmony in, in the working relationship between the elders and the deacons, Brother Wallace uh, and, and me as the elders in our church, and then our, our four deacons. And uh, it's just a beautiful thing to behold. It's a glorious thing. And what I want us to observe in this, in this uh, passage here is, number one, is how human nature acts if there are not proper what shall we say? Checks and balances? In our Constitution has instituted such checks and balances which, which worked for many years and, and uh, I think has gotten out of kelter in some ways. Let's read the passage here in Acts chapter 6. We'll just read the first few verses there. Acts chapter 6. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. Now, once again, these Grecians here are not, uh, are not Gentiles who have been converted to, to Christianity. Uh, they are Gentiles who have been converted to Judaism and then to Christianity. Because in, in the sixth chapter of Acts, the gospel has not been preached ever to Gentiles, those who were not Jews. These were Jewish proselytes who had been converted, but they were Grecian. They were not, they were not eth ethnic Jews. They were, they were ethnically of some Gentile persuasion. Because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now, we're talking about Peter and James and John and, and, and these men who who were the, the apostles who were taking care of this money. It says these widows were neglected. Now, whether they were neglected or not, we cannot tell. Uh, possibly they were. Whatever was done here, I'm sure, was quite unintentional. But still, uh, you see the, the apostle Peter, he goes to this widow's house and then he takes the money to her house and well, he came to my house, but he didn't, even, he didn't bring any money to my house. And well, human nature just gets itself worked up in a big hurry over such as that. And uh, I doubt if there's any way to ever just completely overcome that, but um, that's why I believe it's good to have four deacons who can put their heads together and, and come up with... Uh, some way to handle those matters in a, in a good way. So the apostles don't say here, you know, that's not true, we're, we're doing this. They said this, Wherefore, brethren, look out ye among you. Excuse me, let's go back to verse 2. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. 
Now, Nicholas, being the proselyte of Antioch, would be would be the the uh, the Grecian representative on on the the, the deacon, among the deacons here. He was a proselyte. In other words, he was not an ethnic Jew. Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And so we have introduced here this character, Stephen, who we, whom we shall follow for the next couple of chapters, who was the first Christian martyr, a, a deacon in the church. Now, the word deacon is not used in this passage here, um, but this is certainly what this is referring to, because in First Timothy chapter 3, uh, the two offices in the church, which is the elders or the bishops and the deacons, are delineated there, and, and so Christ has appointed the apostles, and the apostles here have appointed the deacons, and the church has set them forth and chosen them, and the elders laid hands upon them, the apostles did, and, and they were appointed to that work. Now there's one reason, one overwhelming, compelling reason that a church needs deacons. And that is so that the, the, those who minister the Word of God can be free to give themselves entirely to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Peter says it's not proper. It's not reason. It's not proper. It's, it's not reasonable. That here we are, we have these, these spiritual responsibilities, but we also have these logistical responsibilities. And, and we, we probably have not done the logistical things, the proper justice. We ought to appoint some men who, who that is their first priority, is the logistical taking care of the church. Uh, it should be the deacons who think about what's going on around the building. It should be the deacons who are thinking about the material needs of the ministry. And it should be the deacons who are thinking about the material needs of the members and what things are going on there. They should, they should uh, be diligent to, to think on these things, to meditate upon these things, to think about the members of the church, to come together and discuss those issues from time to time. And, and uh, so we have a deacon's meeting here once a month where we talk about such things and many other things along the way. God has appointed the ministry to be primarily concerned with the spiritual feeding of the church of God. And God has appointed the deacons to be primarily concerned with all of the logistics of how the church is run. I say logistics in the sense of, of, uh, of financial, physical kinds of things. But I want you to notice in this that, that uh, there is an oversight that's still exercised by the ministry over these other things. It's just they're not personally involved with them. They're not trying to, to uh, micromanage what's going on, but it is still our responsibility to, to oversee that. It's part of the church's work. But also I want you to notice that it's not that deacons are just supposed to stick to that realm of, of operation. Because Stephen and Philip both became very notable Ministers of the gospel, preachers. Now, I don't mean necessarily ordained. I don't, we don't get, we're not given all that kind of detail. But Stephen here begins a ministry of teaching the word of God, preaching the word of God, but that's not his primary function in the church. Perhaps that becomes that later. I was reading just as, just in the last two or three days, as a matter of fact, in a, uh, <clears throat> in a church history written by a, a 4th century Christian historian, a man named Eusebius, in which he records a letter written by somebody, one of the first, one of the first uh, Christian writers uh, in, in the first, in the, actually in the 2nd century, the 1st century after the Apostolic Age, this lengthy letter written to one, a deacon of one of the churches, and it seems that this deacon was about to, to be appointed for the bishopric in this particular church. And he was, he was encouraging him to carry out his duties of deacon in such a way that, that, would, uh, that would make his appointment to the bishopric be a simple matter that the church could understand and, and know that that was the will of God. And it was a very excellent letter. <clears throat> so, we have, so we have bishops and deacons. 
That's what they're described in 1 Timothy chapter 3. A bishop, of course, simply means the Greek word episkopos, which means an overseer. And that's what the minister is. That's what the pastor is. And the reason that this tension exists that I spoke of earlier is because pastors are viewed as transient and deacons are viewed as permanent. And so when this tension arises, preachers become alarmed because it seems that deacons are trying to encroach into their spiritual duties, their their interpretation of the Word of God. And and by the way, I've talked to a lot of of uh, of ministers who whom to, whom God had taught the doctrine of grace, the 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 truths of election and predestination and so forth. And and when they would begin to preach that, very often it was the deacons who led the charge of revolt against that because they they have this this uh this uh felt responsibility of of holding the the spiritual uh reins of the church when god has never put that in their hands god has put the, the spiritual reins of the church into the hands of the ministry god has put put the physical as it were the the financial the logistical uh, reins of the church not into the minister's hand but into the hands of the deacons I believe deacons do ill to try to take the spiritual reins. I believe, I believe preachers do ill when they try to take the physical reins. There's, there is a working together in which everything gets done and, and, uh, and it also helps the preachers stay out of, of, uh, of favoritism and, and, uh, who's, who, you know, people will come to me sometimes and say, um, you know, I think we ought to do such, such and such for so and so. And uh, I've got a very pat answer for that. It is? Well, why don't you go and talk about that to the deacons? You just pass that along, and, and, uh, and, that's, and that's great. If they want to go talk to the deacons about that, I think that's, that's needful. And, and the, deacons, the deacons we have here in this church are spiritually minded enough to, to handle those things, and I praise the Lord for that. Now... What kind of men were appointed as deacons? Well, I tell you, I believe every man in this room ought to aspire in his spirit to be of such a character in the kingdom of God that he could meet these qualifications when and if the need arose for him to do that. There have always been varying degrees of spiritual maturity among uh, uh, men and women, uh, people in the church. Uh, a lot having to do with uh, how much time somebody's been in the church, how uh, how much, how many commitments that they've made to the Lord. And but as I set before you here tonight, and I would speak particularly to men tonight, that you young men, even you teenagers. That God would bless you to aspire to be like these men. I, I pray that God would bless you to aspire to be like Brother Flanagan. Because, you know, we live in a very materialistic world. Where, where money is, is greatly treasured and greatly valued. And it would be easy. The, the, the Bible says that the love of money is the root of every evil. I believe that has to do with all kinds of evil. There's, there's great temptations. The Bible says they who would be rich fall into many snares and hurtful lusts. Uh, it should not be our desire ever to have lots of money. It ought to be our desire to use whatever money God has given us for His glory and work however much we need to work in this world and, and, and spend our, our physical energies to, to provide for our families. And the Bible says if we don't do that, we're worse than infidels. We're worse than unbelievers if we don't work and provide for our own families. But I believe that ought to be to the degree that is necessary for, to provide a reasonable substance for our families. I think there have been many families who have gone awry and gone astray because men have just wanted to work more and harder and have more things and, and amass things to themselves. And I believe that's entirely the opposite of the attitude that, that John Wesley apparently had in this quote that Brother Flanagan gave here. When I have any money, I get rid of it as quickly as possible lest it find a way into my heart. Money is, 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 is necessary. 
But money has great potential for great harm. It, 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 it was the first real bump that the first century church hit when they began to complain about how the money was being dispersed. And um, <clears throat> that's, as far as I know, nobody in this church has ever said anything to me at least about how the money is dispersed. But you know what? I'd be willing to almost appoint you to sainthood if you've never thought it. <laughs> Got any saints out? Well, of course, we're all saints in Christ. <laughs> you never thought that. Um, that's just the nature of man. And so these deacons have extremely important jobs, and it takes a particular quality of man to, to take on this position. Well, the apostles in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts only gave one qualification here. And really, this one qualification is, is an all-encompassing qualification that Paul later goes on and gives more specifics of in, in there in 1 Timothy. But the one qualification is that he be full of the Holy Ghost. And I can assure you that does not mean that he has spoken in tongues. I can assure you that's not what's under consideration. I can assure you that's the farthest thing from anybody's mind. So what is under consideration here? There are some people in our day who mistakenly believe that the evidence of being filled with the Holy Ghost is being able to speak in tongues. And they assure one another that if they're able to do this, they're filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, I deny that. I don't believe there's anything in the Bible relative to that. And uh, certainly I've known people before who spoke in tongues that I didn't feel like were, were full of the Holy Ghost. Matter of fact, I thought they were full of other things, but not the Holy Ghost. Uh, <clears throat> full of baloney. And, well, let's move on here. Um, what does this mean? Full of the Holy Ghost. You know, I believe that's what this represents right here. An attitude. Being full of the Holy Ghost is probably not some kind of quantitative thing. You can't measure it. You can't put it in a in a test tube and, and analyze it. You can't you can't put it in a in a in a measuring device. And it's it's got to do with attitude. It's got to do with their attitude about about God and their attitude about this world. That, that, that there's there's no great holding on to this world and the things of this world. For the things of this world are fleeting. The things of this world are fading. And and uh, you see, what Brother Flanagan has now is is a, is a mobile home down in Grenada. And I guess no car. Sister Flanagan, as far as I know, never drove. Brother Flanagan did all the driving. She may have driven. I don't remember. I somehow had it in mind she didn't even drive. But anyway... Uh, they were a sweet, sweet couple there, and and she was his right hand girl or whatever. But when he said said to me when I was hanging on some rafter up here that he wished he had a nailer, I'm sure he was thinking of Mert. I wish it was Mert up there instead of that green horn preacher that playing like he's a carpenter. Um, a sweet, sweet relationship there that that uh, I'm, has been a blessing in my life. Full of the Holy Ghost. Uh, seek you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. In the book of Ephesians, I want to say a word about what it is to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. And we have that expression found in uh Actually, it's in the fifth chapter. He says in uh, verse, well, let's see. We'll start reading in verse 15. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. Wherefore, be 
ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, he, he, he commands them to be filled with the Spirit. This is not some subjective thing um, that a person feels in some way. Now, he says, I command, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And, you know, I believe that there must be some kind of a, of a contrast intended here. A person who is drunk with wine, I suppose, uh, is, is, uh, is, is controlled by that, is he not? When a person is drunk, he is, he is being physically controlled by some substance. But he says here, you be filled with the Spirit. And uh, thankfully, I've never experienced the phenomenon of being drunk, but I understand that there's a certain euphoria that you experience while you're drunk. I've heard that it feels good. I've also heard it feels very bad afterwards. And and uh, when you wake up and find out you beat your wife and your kids and spend all your money, well, you kind of come to and you realize that as the Bible says that wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Um <clears throat> but be controlled by the Spirit of God. Now, objectively, what is this? Well, I don't have time to go into this. I just wanted to point you to this passage. What what does Paul immediately, well, he's been doing this already in uh, starting back here in chapter 4, giving these practical exhortations of, of godliness, just like we talked about this past Wednesday night. There was this balance between doctrine and practice. Well, what is being filled with the Spirit? Well, it's loving your wife. It's dwelling with your wife according to knowledge. It's being submissive to your husband. It's being a faithful and good employee. It's obeying your parents. It's training and rearing your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You see, it's no big, deep, dark something that you've got to go in some closet and pray over in, in, in that way. I mean, we pray over these things. It's something that a person does by faith. He lives it. Now, there was something in Stephen and Philip and all these, all these men that the whole church, when and there were thousands of them, as they thought about about this qualification. I want seven men of honest report. They've got a reputation for honesty. Full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. These thousands of people in some in some way, and, and the, the way that that's given is not specified here, and uh, but there was some kind of a, some kind, obviously, of a democratic process whereby these seven men were chosen and, and there were things in these men's lives that impressed the church. It didn't just impress the church, it motivated the church and inspired the church. Now we men ought to hunger to live our lives in such a way that, that by virtue of, of godliness and honesty, and spirituality, that when the members of this church think about you, they think that they're strengthened by your being there. Just your being there. Your being a part of that that church. Your being a part of that work. It's strengthening the body of Christ or or a woman, whoever whoever it may be. Um, we're, we're told in the scriptures that to obey them to have the rule over you. That... That they may give that they may give account with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. We ought to live in our our lives in such a way as you know, when I take the membership list, and uh, I think about all of you all the time. I pray for you. I, I think about where you are in life and what what what's going on in your life, and that when I come to your name, my prayer is is tremendously in, in, involved in thanksgiving and praise. What do people think about? Well, we're not that we're worried about what people think about us, but we ought to live our lives in such a way that the, that the church of the living God is inspired by my life. Oh, that's what I want for my... See, I was inspired when I read this. If I had picked this up in just some book somewhere or if I had read it somewhere else... I don't know. I might not have been particularly impressed by it. It's a great quote. 
But you see, I knew who said it. And when I think of Wiley Flanagan, I think of this spirit. Even before I read, when I read that quote, saw it in his handwriting, I just thought, praise God. He lived this philosophy of life. A man full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. A man of honest report. I've run into people that, that knew Brother Flanagan just in an entirely secular sort of way and always reported uh, happy business dealings and, and he would fix their, their property and do work for them and such such like that when people look at you and and how is it with you? Where do you go to church? Well, I go over here to the Primitive Baptist Church. Now, if the only thing that 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 person knows about the Ripley Primitive Baptist Church is you, reckon what they think. It's a sobering question, sobering thought. But you see, we ought to live our lives in such a way that when uh, I was talking to this fellow over, that we met through a homeschool group over there in uh, Corinth, and when I mentioned that I was a Primitive Baptist, he, he immediately had some kind of a positive image in his mind. You know why? Because he knew Wiley Flanagan. And he remembered a quote of, of Brother Flanagan. He said, Brother Flanagan always tried to convince me about, about election and predestination. He said, I, I don't know. I just, I, I never was quite. He said, but I remember something Brother Flanagan said. It really stuck with me. He said, when you sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound he says, you don't sing Amazing Faith, do you? He said, you know, that's true. We don't sing Amazing Faith, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We certainly don't sing Amazing Works that saved a wretch like me. I suppose even even uh, Church of Christ folks have it in their book, Amazing Grace, although they may not understand it as well as, as we would wish. But, you know, we sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, that man was not, I guess, convinced of Brother Flanagan's doctrine, but he was convinced of the godly character of his life. When he, when he met him, when he saw him, and when he met another primitive Baptist along the way, he knew that this was, this was something good. I, I've, I've always thought about what Brother, what Brother Wallace said about his daddy, when his daddy moved into this community. And... Uh, Went to the general store and needed some provisions, and, and as people did back in difficult days, had to buy things on credit. And, and uh, one of the deacons in the church was willing to vouchsafe for him, and uh, and just say, oh, I, I I know this man will pay his debts, and if he doesn't stand in good for him, I'll." And the proprietor of the store said, uh, "said uh, well, if he's a primitive Baptist, I don't have to worry about him paying his debts." Oh, what a blessing! What a testimony. A man full of, full of, of, of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom whom we may appoint over this matter. Oh, I tell you, brother, brother, uh, brother Thomas Floyd's sermon this morning was such a blessing to my soul. And, and, uh, I trust it was to yours, but I hope that one thing it did was make you and me more, uh, zealous to want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. But you see, our, our lives must mix and match with our works or our words are meaningless. These are men who will go out and the community of Jerusalem will observe them and they'll see them and these men will be uh, high representatives of the Christian church and so should you men in, in your going about and certainly the women as well. If you go about this community and, and you have intercourse with with uh, the the people who own the stores and 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 uh, clerks and and paying bills and and you you meet people along the way that that uh, your character is saying what you want your character to say about Jesus Christ and His church. They may say of you, "I don't believe what they believe," but I sure admire how they live. Oh, I'd rather have that said of us than for somebody to say, listen, I'd rather have that said of us than to have somebody to say, you know, they convinced me of their doctrine was true. And I love the doctrine. I love election. And I love to convince people of its biblical uh, veracity. But oh, how I'd rather somebody say, 
there goes someone who lives his Christian testimony. I'd a lot rather somebody say that of me, or say that of you, or say that of us. Elder and pastor are used pretty much interchangeably, and they are they're used almost synonymously over in the twentieth chapter of the of the book of uh, of Acts, where Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. There he called the elders together, said, "Take heed to yourselves and to the flocks." over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the flock of God. The word feed is the same word as pastor. To pastor, to shepherd the, the flock of God. So to, speaking to the elders, he says, take heed to the, those over which God has made you bishop, overseer, that you pastor the church of God. You lead the church of God. And and so we we do commonly, and I believe it's proper, and I, we could show some biblical precedent for this, to consider one man kind of to be so-called the pastor. But I tell you, for one man to be trying to carry on the, the important business of the church of God by himself is sheer folly. He needs, he needs real help. He needs substantial help. And he needs that help from spiritually minded men who were more concerned with the, with the advancement of the kingdom of God than the bank account per se. Now all that's got to be taken into consideration. But most of the tension between deacons and preachers is preachers want to spend the money and deacons want to kind of hold it together and not spend it. I've, they, they've guarded their money. They've guarded the money of churches which had lots of money, could do good things with them very, very jealously sometimes. And, and preachers are often have in mind more spiritually uh, oriented things and, well, tensions arise. <clears throat> But the office of a bishop is given here, and the ones for a deacon, you'll notice, are very similar. There are, there are a few differences. Actually, the main difference between the qualification for a bishop and the qualification for a deacon is that a bishop must be apt to teach. And that qualification is not given here, but something similar to that is given. And let's look at it. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, verse 8, likewise must the deacons be grave, serious, serious about this business, not double-tongued, not, not blabber-mouths, not given to much wine, not, uh, not given to drunkenness, not greedy of filthy lucre, that is, they're not, they're not concerned with money, that money's not their main objective, that's not what they're pursuing, that's not what they're after in this world. <clears throat> not greedy of filthy lucre. And here it is. Um, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. I, I appreciate, especially men. You know, men are charged in the Scriptures with the responsibility of guiding their houses and training their children, teaching their children. And certainly uh, the women have great responsibility in that as well. But the, 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 the buck stops with the men. And so you men, every one of you men, ought to know what the Word of God teaches about any given subject. You ought to be doctrinally astute. You ought to be students of the Word. You ought to know what the Word of God teaches. You ought to be able to defend and, and promote the, the, uh, the doctrine of the Bible and live, of course, the doctrine of the Bible. But there's something unique and particular about these deacons that they must especially hold the mystery of the faith in a good conscience. Now, I think that what that means is this. If I don't have a good conscience about my personal life, I'll probably be a poor witness. And I hope so. <laughs> because probably folks would do more harm than good if, if, if in their personal lives folks know they don't pay their debts, uh, they're not honest in their dealings in some way, or they, they hear people out and around and they use profanity or, or they're, they, they, uh, say lewd things, improper things about other women or, uh, carry on in ways that are that are unholy and improper, and then yet they want to come and convince somebody about the doctrine of election. I'd say to such an one, spare us. Uh, don't 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 do our don't do our cause harm. Just keep your mouth shut and do what Brother Thomas said this morning. Repent. That's what that's what that's what we need. But when holy character is matched with doctrinal purity, I tell you, you've got men full of the Holy Ghost, men full of wisdom. 
And I, I pray that every one of you men, I pray that you young men will aspire to be that in your lives. To not spend so much of your time with, with the things of this world. I, I know everybody needs a little relaxing time and all that, but be more concerned about uh, the B-I-B-L-E than you are ESPN. I tell you, we need more of that in the day in which we live. We need people who are concerned not about who's winning the ball games, and that's okay to ask who won the ball game. And it's okay to watch one every once in a while. But I tell you, I believe it's a poor way for one to spend much time. Watch sitting around in front of a, a television watching people beat each other up on a field or hit a little ball around or get a round orange one through a hoop and get paid zillions of dollars in the process. I'll tell you, I don't mind telling anybody, I think that's a poor way to spend much of your time. I believe it's a poor way to spend much of your time sitting in front of the television watching anything, for that matter. I think it's a real poor way to spend much of your time. There's important, there are important things in this life. See, you're, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. <laughs> when I read this quote, I took, I got so excited about it. Sister Darlene was over in the next room with her typing class and, and, uh, so I went over there and I said, look what I found in Brother Flanagan's book. And I read it out loud. The typing kids were in that. I said, you know what? I'm going to save this and I'm going to read it at Brother Flanagan's funeral. And Morgan says, if you don't die first. <laughs> well, she had that, she had that right. I was making an assumption about that I was going to be around when Brother, when Brother Flanagan's funeral came into being, and I don't know that. Oh, my friends, how we ought to be spending our time, our time with important things while we live here in this world. Things that really matter. Things that are, that count for eternity. Things that will count in the lives of our children and things that will count in the lives of others whose, whose lives we may encounter as we go about and try to talk to people about who Jesus Christ is and what He did for me. He must hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. But I tell you, I want deacons who live holy lives but know what the Bible teaches and are able to, to, they may not be able to expound it as well as others, some who God has given particular gifts to. And so everybody can't, can't expound upon it like, like maybe those who have studied it better may be able to. But I tell you, when men get up in this pulpit, we need, we need men, deacons, we need men and women, we need boys and girls who are able to say that's the truth or that's not the truth. They're grounded in the faith. They understand the principles of Scripture. And uh, I'm thankful that, that I've heard little children question things that were preached. That is, that, is that what the Bible says? And, you know, sometimes maybe they've just not heard something, but sometimes I've seen little children pick up on, on uh, some things that were not true. He says, and let these also first be proved, and then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. And I think that's primarily forbidding polygamy here, which was, which was common in this day. The husband of one wife, ruling their own children and their own houses well. And they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I want to focus on that last phrase, they gain great boldness in the faith, because that's going to be our introductory note to this next episode in the book of Acts, where one of these deacons comes before, uh, he, he begins to dispute, debate, if you will, with uh, some of the Jews about certain things about Christ, and, and his spirit, his, his words were were uh, gracious. His words were powerful and they could not be refuted. So they, his opponents did what folks do when they don't have substantive, substantive arguments. They get mad, right? Okay, so that's what happens. Right, Kathy? <laughs> oh, Kathy's been, been uh, transcribing the debate in any way. She's got all into that. I thank the Lord for, for her <coughs> willingness to work in that. But, but, but Stephen was unflappable, wasn't he? Said they, saw, they beheld his face, 
He looked like an angel. He'd been, he'd been brought in before this group of hostile men. And, and, and he, his, his face was like an angel. Now, whatever that looked like. We, we just have to assume that was utter tranquility and peacefulness. He, he was in the presence of God. He was in the hands of God. But you know what else that Stephen knew? Stephen knew he was right. And there's great, there's great strength in that. There's great strength in not he, he, didn't, he didn't think he was right because he was anybody. But he was right because of what God's Word had taught him in his own heart and in his own spirit. And so he had purchased to himself great boldness in the faith. John Wesley said, When I have any money, I get rid of it as quickly as possible, lest it find a way into my heart. Deuteronomy 10.12 reads, And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. May the spirit of Wiley Flanagan, the spirit of Stephen, yea, certainly the spirit of Christ, rest upon us individually in our lives, collectively in our church, that whether we're ever called upon to serve in, in some, shall we say, official capacity as a, as a bishop or a deacon, um, I tell you, it strengthens my life. It strengthens this, this ministry to look out into the congregation of people and see faithfulness. To see you out there on your pew uh, worshiping the Lord, it blesses me. I tell you... Um, I know sometimes we all kind of have a, can get distracted by things, but you know we're singing up out there, uh, "Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound," and somebody's looking around and looking at the ceiling, looking at the floor, and and chewing gum and whatever you know. Instead of "Amazing Grace," how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind. But now I see. I believe people who sing that, believe that, are going to be people who will live holy lives. The doctrine of grace, I don't believe, has ever made a true believer to live in some kind of lascivious way and say, well, the grace of God will take care of that in the final analysis. I believe the grace of God, well, we're told in Titus 2, that the grace of God that has appeared to all men, Jews and Gentiles alike, teaching us. See, the grace of God teaches people. When the grace of God really comes, it teaches people that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present evil world. That's what, that's what grace teaches people. May God give us that spirit. <clears throat> Let's stand together and sing 154. I may have told you about this. I heard a, a song on the radio. AFR uh, has a news program that usually comes on about five minutes before the hour. And if I'm sitting around a radio, I kind of like to hear the news from their perspective. And anyway, I turned it on a few minutes earlier. Some girl came on and lovely, lovely song. Kind of a Scottish, uh, what's the word, music bagpipes it was just gorgeous man it was gorgeous I love the music but anyway the word she blew it she said amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a one like me and I thought hmm Scottish broken off forget it she missed the point a set that saved a wretch like me undeserving lost how about that coin how about that sheep that son that brother Thomas Spoke about this morning. Ah, oh, yes, it saved a wretch like me. Let's let's sing this song to the Lord. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
is I have already come tis grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will say before we dismiss let's pray our heavenly father we're so grateful tonight that you by your infinite grace have called us out of the darkness of this world into the light of your kingdom lord we confess even as the preacher preached this morning that we had no more ability to recover ourselves than that lost sheep did, or that lost coin, or even that lost son. But Father, by a great working of grace, and through a great display of mercy, You called us, You quickened us by Your Spirit, and called us by that Spirit, and by the Gospel of Jesus Christ, to walk in newness of life, to become new creatures in Christ Jesus. We bless you tonight. We thank you and praise you. Father, I pray that this church might have the blessing of the testimony that this first century church did. Yes, Lord, they had human beings in it and, and sometimes wicked thoughts entered their minds. Jealousies, 
envyings and strife. Lord, it seems that we're, we'll never be shed of that even in the most perfect of circumstances. But Lord, you taught us in your word that we can, um, we can rein those things in by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we might always do that. And you'd bless uh, the, the elders and the deacons in this church to always act with such wisdom and, and true spiritual understanding that uh, all of that would be kept down to a, a great minimum. Lord, guide us into your word and to your truth that we might walk in it all the days of our lives. We might have a boldness of faith to share it with others, even as Stephen did of old whose manner of life and whose words were indisputable. And so men just had to turn to hatred. Father, go with us now through this week. Draw us near to yourself. Give us holy thoughts of holy things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. Be steadfast, unmovable always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.